Here we go. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Dave Larson. I live in Seattle, Washington, and I did a, a small record label called Excursion Records for years. Late 90s, I made a movie called The Edge of Coral. Those might be reasons you would know who I was, but probably not. Anyway, this podcast is called I've Known You Too Long, and it's an opportunity for me to have conversations with people I've known for a long time that you may have heard of or may not have heard of about things you may care about or may not. My guest today is Greg Benick. Greg is a vocalist in multiple bands, Trial and Between Earth and Sky. He is a film producer. He is a activist. Um, Greg wears a lot of hats, and we'll talk to him about what those exactly are in a little bit. Greg, welcome. Dave, I am honored to be the first guest on your podcast. Thank you. I hope I hope that I hope that you have so many guests. That's a significant <laughs> thing. Meaning, I hope that there's not just one episode. So I'm the first and last guest on your podcast. I hope this is a long-lasting project. Well, that life. would make you a distinguished guest. I will do everything I can to make sure this is your last episode. <laughs> okay, so Greg. I've known you too long. I've known you as well too long. Please okay. tell me more. And so the deal with this is um, this is probably going to be my most common um, version of I've known you too long. I have known you so long that I cannot remember when we actually met. I can't remember when we met either. But so we're going to sort this out. I'm and, thinking as I'm talking, so I sound like a zombie, but I can't remember when we met. No, that's good. And, okay. and so here, here's basically what I'm going to do. We're going to figure out when we met. And then we're going to go back from that point, and I'm going to ask some questions about you. We're going to find out who you are and where you came from. Okay. Let me, let me throw out then. Can I throw out the furthest memory back that I have of you? Yes. Well, and the, the third part is once we get that all sorted out, we'll come back to where we met and we'll move forward and see what we've been doing since then. Oh, I got it. Okay, cool. cool. I have a memory of you and me sitting in the convertible Cadillac that I owned very temporarily when I bought it from someone here in Seattle in the early 90s on Broadway. I owned that car for all of about two weeks before it was towed away forever. We were sitting on the northwest corner of Broadway and I can't remember which street it was at the north end of Broadway. And we were talking about what we were going to be doing in the summer of 94. Right. Summer of 94. Right. That sounds about right. It goes back a little bit further than I know that. it does. I know it does. That's my earliest memory. I, the funny thing I was going to tell you is that that's essentially, for some reason, you and the Cadillac are absolutely linked. And I guess it's because you owned it. I thought that was Derek Harn's Cadillac. It was Derek Harn's Cadillac. And then I bought it from him or he sold it. And then I bought it from the next person. Technically, yeah. I think that might have been what it was. And I think that it was like I owned it and then it got towed or somebody borrowed it or so, whatever it was. It was never meant to last. It was never meant to last. And so what we're talking about is an old. Do you remember the year? 1994. No, Maybe, oh, the Cadillac. Year, oh, the year the Cadillac. Um I don't. I really okay. don't. So there was this old Cadillac, totally beat to hell. Someone got the idea that they should cut the top off of it. It was a hard top. Cut the top off of it themselves. I believe there was some duct tape thrown on there, like true hardcore style. Sounds sounds about right. And uh, 
that car, probably not legal at all, would generally be filled with upwards of... 15 of, kids. Yeah, as many people, like, <laughs> just driving around for no reason. It is the only time in my life I've driven around in a vehicle, ridden around in a vehicle, for no reason whatsoever. That's the only time in your life? I was never a cruiser or anything like that. Not even a cruiser, but, I mean, you grew up in, in a relatively rural-ish city and rural-ish area, right? Yeah, but other than learning to drive, I didn't just do driving for the sake of it. I, there were people that did that, and they were not my friends. I drove around for so many countless hours that there isn't a number that high when I was growing up in Connecticut. Oh, well, let's get to that now. Now, I do that now, but okay. <laughs> but okay. not in a, not in a Cadillac with the top cut off in the summer afternoon. Okay. Like that's so I also know you because of Bill Baker. Okay? And if I remember right, you met Bill Baker at the Kinkos in the University District of Seattle. Yes. I think while I was on tour with Undertow in 1993. I want to say that it was earlier than that, but I remember when you were on tour. I remember that tour happening, but I know that I was creating a book. My first chat book was called Aftermath. Yeah. And I made, I laid out, I wrote and laid out Aftermath at that Kinko's. And if I remember correctly, Aftermath was um, the sub subtitle. It was after, it was called Aftermath Journal Entries 1992, which means that I was putting it out in 93. It might have been mm -hmm. Journal Entries 1993. I mean, you're right. It was right around that time. Yes, Kinko's. Yes, tour. So I'm pretty. Yeah. So what ended pretty up happening close. is I left my job, and uh, Bill took over. Bill worked for a brief time there. I believe Graveyard Shift at that Kinko's. It was Graveyard, and so he knew of you. So okay. So what we've what we've got figured out is that I meet you and you meet me at some point between summer '93 and summer '94. That's a year. Yeah, and I, I think I honestly do think it was earlier than that though, because how would I have known to go to that Kinko's, or how would I? How would that have all worked? Did I? Know oh, that's first? Th at the time that was just how it worked. You and I have no specific memory of a handshake or a hey, this is Dave Larson. Hey, this is Greg Bennett. No, no. And when we sat in that car, we had a real conversation about what what we were going to do, what we were going to achieve. There was a lot of like hope, and it wasn't the conversation you have with a stranger. No, that we was, already knew each other. So it was 20, so 20 years ago. We remember you, the conversation. You right? emerge out of a haze in my mind into a very focused figure at that point. So you were in the haze. I think we just kind of ran in the same circles, and eventually it was just like, of course we know each other. That sounds about right. Good enough. That's good for now. Yeah. So we're going back. Okay. Where did you come from? I came from Connecticut. I moved here in 1991 to go to acting school. To in 91? In 91, to study at, at Cornish College of the Arts. And I had been living in Connecticut. I went to Syracuse University for a year, decided to drop out because I hated it. I couldn't stand it. It's just too too many people, too many sororities, fraternities. I just couldn't, I couldn't hang. And I quit. I did a year's apprenticeship with a mask maker, learning theatrical mask making and the significance of theatrical masks and what they signify. On the East Coast? On the East Coast. And after the year, the mask maker turned to me. He said, what are you going to do next year? I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, I went to high school with a guy who now teaches at an acting school in Seattle called Cornish. You should fly out there and audition. And I remember January of 91, I flew out and auditioned for Cornish and was accepted. And that same week, there was a show at the OK Hotel. It was Undertow opening for Poison Idea. And I went down. Of course. Yeah, I went down to the show and I watched the bands. And afterwards, I went up to the Undertow guys and the handful of ancillary friends that were around. And I started talking to them. I said, I'm from Connecticut and you guys are great. And how big's the straight edge scene here? How big's the hardcore scene? And I always remember John Pettibone laughing, saying, we're it. 
you know, yeah, meaning, okay. meaning the band members. By the way, then... by the way, you just identified the time we met then. Okay. Were you there at the show? Yeah. And I don't specifically remember that what you're talking about because what you're talking about happened so many times over. And if you weren't someone that then was, you know, if, if, if it didn't keep repeating, like we'd see you at every show after that. Right. Um, but yeah, I wasn't in Seattle yet. I was still living in Bellingham, but I was at that show for sure. Okay. And so I was would have been hanging with those you guys. You would have been hanging with yeah. those guys. So you were one of the ancillary friends. But I remember John saying, <laughs> I like you know, that. yeah, John saying, we're, we're it. We're, we are the hardcore scene. And I remember thinking, that's all right. That's a great place, you know, to be. And I was telling him stories about the anthrax. And I remember saying, give me your demo and I'll, I'll forward it on to Jordan at Revelation back, back in Connecticut. And I remember taking the undertow demo home and giving it to Jordan. Jordan and I met to, I think I gave him some juggling balls and he gave me some seven inches in Hamden, Connecticut. And I gave him the undertow demo. I remember, um, this is, you know, forever and a day ago, nice. but I mean, I remember that happening, but the point is, is that that was the first introduction I had to Seattle hardcore was at that show. So I love that you were there. That would have absolutely been, that was the, one of the first days that I was ever in Seattle in my life. So I'm glad we met there. Okay. We're going back further then. All right. Prior to you going to school and, and, Syracuse and coming back to it was Syracuse you said right? Syracuse yeah. um and coming here uh you were I've seen pictures a bit of a punk rocker prior to uh coming out here shouldn't even put that in a historical context still to this day more of a punk rocker than yeah but else. people think of you as more like the bald singer <laughs> of a straight edge band no I, and I don't know if they've seen the pictures of you with big mohawk that's unfortunate they should everyone um, should yeah everyone absolutely should. yeah um so what I want to know is, I want to know about Greg, little kid Greg. I want to know, what what were you like in grade school? Okay. Um, when I was in grade school, I was the outcast and the nerd. I was most definitely the one who, you know, who's doing well in school or who knew all the answers and didn't really study much. And that isn't me championing my own ego. It was just kind of the way it was, meaning I had no friends because no one understood me and I didn't understand them. I didn't you know, play sports. I wasn't the popular kid. I was just the kid who just hung out and read. All are the we time. the, are we the same age? Are we, we're a year yeah, off. I think we're, I think you're a year older than me. You're 43. I'm 43. Okay. Um, so star Wars was obviously a huge influence on huge, you. Of course. You saw it in the theater. Of course. Remember. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Empire. Yeah, absolutely. Saw it in the theater, was disappointed, didn't think that it was, uh, that, that it, it came to completion the way that I wanted it to. And then I just waited for Empire, uh, for Return of the Jedi. And then, of course, you know, felt good about that. Bill Baker, who we've already re referenced once and who I'll be interviewing soon, he, uh, in my very first spoiler situation was he read the book, the paperback book version of Empire Strikes Back when we were in grade school and told us all in the cafeteria what happened. Wow. Yeah, I hold I hold grudges. I'd I'd still be mad. I have I I, I have a little bit. Yeah, I that's might... with Bill. There's so much more though. So it, yeah, that's it's all wonderful. Are you it's saying a... are you saying there's so many more reasons to be mad at oh, Bill? Oh no no no, okay. to love Bill. <laughs> to love it's, Bill, it's a, I agree. It's a, it's a stew of awesome. Yeah, well, I and agree. That's gonna come out. That's just a little teaser for future episodes. Great. But okay, so I, this is beginning to sound like I think what a lot of these stories are gonna sound like. Outcast kid, you go into junior high. At what point do you hear music that changes your life? Okay, so it's around, gosh, what year was it? It was sometime in the early to mid-80s or so, maybe the mid-80s. And a friend of mine named Chris came over to my house one day with a cassette tape. And Chris had had this genius idea, and this is going to sound so archaic and dated, 
that it, it, it doesn't sound like I was alive. I could possibly still be alive because this must have been so long ago. Chris had this idea that if he climbed to the roof of his parents' house and installed an antenna on his parents' roof, that he'd be able to pick up radio stations from New York City, where we lived in Connecticut. Okay, even as I say that, it's like, I think to myself, whoa, were we driving, like, no cars? Were we, like, riding horses and mules and, like, cooking over open flames? This was reality, though. This was reality. Like, how did I communicate with, with my grandparents? Like, Morse code? Did I tap out, hello, grandma, or wait for the carrier pigeon to come back with the message? Okay, so he climbs to the roof of his parents' house, installs this antenna, points it toward New York City, and is able to pick up radio stations from New York. He also notices... Oh, it worked. Oh, absolutely, yeah. He nice. also notices he notices WXCI in Danbury, which he, we could get, and a show called The Adventure Jukebox, which is a punk show. But out of New York, he starts picking up radio stations with, with hip-hop and, and things like that. And he brings over these scratchy, just like, you could barely hear it because the radio station was so far away, hip-hop, early hip-hop, recordings on cassette and then a cassette tape of uh the meat men angry samoans alien sex fiend and <laughs> there was another band too husker do and and plays this music for me and at first i didn't know what to make of it i just i had no idea what so to you're make talking it. about scratchy recordings on cassette tape from well the hip-hop was very scratchy because those were the ones coming out of new okay. york the ones the uh, wxci adventure jukebox was like the punk okay. show of western western connecticut state university so he was playing me the hip hop, which was interesting to me, but it was the, the punk stuff that was, it was so unsettling that I didn't know what to do with myself because again, I grew up, you know, I had my handful of friends, but I wasn't the popular kid. You know, I, you know, my crowning achievement was that I read the encyclopedia when I was like seven. I just sat around all the time, just <laughs> reading the encyclopedia instead of hanging out with people. And all of a sudden after listening to you know, first just like soft pop Lionel Richie and stuff like that. But my mom was suggesting when I was a little kid and then getting into into metal, like hair metal in the early 80s yeah. and thinking that was godlike. All of a sudden, here comes Chris with this abrasive, insane music. And what do you do with Husker Du when up until then, Rat and Motley Crue has been the heaviest shit in the world? You don't know what to do at all. Oh, but it's cool, though, because Rat and Motley Crue paves the way for it. In in a way, I honestly think I think that Rat and Molly Crew paves its own way towards a different destination, and that Husker Du, Circle Jerks was another one. Oh, yeah. Angry Samoans, Meat Men, just swerves you in a totally different direction. It does, but you know, the, the, it's weird. The hair and the makeup and the weird clothes and just looking like a freak. It was a socially acceptable fad freak look at the time. So people would watch it on. T you know, kids were buying posters and putting it on their walls. But it was still a different from society look, and it was still a louder and more aggressive kind of your parents got mad at it sound. So punk, when, when you're a kid and you're already like different can be cool, punk is a, is a more dangerous a version stone. of that. Okay, it's, it's, it's more like a reality version. Of, I, can, I can wear bandanas and try to be a rocker, but I'm never going to be like rat because it's not real. Okay, I get that. Whereas this punk rock shit is real. That's the thing. So I'm, I'm with you in that it was a stepping stone. Maybe not like, like a direct pathway. Yeah. It's stepping stone for sure because I just know that if you listen to Looks That Kill by Motley Crue, absolutely epic song. Fantastic. Listen to that. You'll love it. And then all of a sudden make the jump to the girl who lives on Heaven Hill with um, the girl who lives at lives uh, girl who lives on heaven, on heaven Hill. I should know my who's going to do more. Okay. Girl don't. who lives on Heaven Hill. Who's going to do? I had it right the first time. <laughs> Listen to that song and the guitar in that. And at towards the end of the song where it just goes total chaos, yet it's still got its, 
it's uh, rhythm and cadence and it's still listenable, but it's just so chaotic. And he's just screaming. All of a sudden you've forgotten how tough Motley Crue and yeah. Lux That Kill sounded. It's just, that's a different reality, a totally different path. So you make a choice, like yeah. an artistic choice yeah. at that point. Absolutely. And it's, and it's very much a, I don't care what the masses think or other, other, or a lot of my other peers think. I mean, did you ever, did anyone ever give you a hard time? When was the first time someone gave you a hard time for your music? Well, I, you know, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but what I can tell you is that I remember that I listened to these bands and I thought, I don't know if I like this. I think I hate this, but I think I love this. And I know I'm fascinated by this. I need an album from each of these bands. So we found this record store about 20, 30 minutes away that had punk records. So I bought a record by the Meat Men, record by the Angry Samoans. I bought uh, Circle Jerks, Wonderful. Uh, so that da- that dates. It's probably 1985 or so that this happened. Um, Circle Jerks, Wonderful, Hushkadu, uh, New Day Rising, and I didn't buy an Alien Sex Fiend record because they weren't really, you know, they were more like new wavy, yeah. you know. Um, so anyway, and I came home and I listened to each of these records, and the first time I probably got grief for it was probably from within my own family wondering what was happening but i remember that shortly thereafter i i'm pretty sure that i i made i I had this long jacket that i bought from this company called commander salamander out of washington (laughs) dc it was this mail order place so i bought i bought this long jacket and i remember taking safety pins and in safety pins i made a big spider on the back of the jacket (laughs) and i remember wearing that into school and i remember (laughs) I remember a girl, oh, so wonderful. a girl named Dana came up to me and she said, what, what's happened to you? You've changed. <laughs> there is always that girl. Okay. And I yeah. remember though thinking, and on one hand, on one side, I wanted to be like, no, 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 no. I haven't changed. I'm still the same. And then on the other hand, I was like, I like this. Yeah. I guess I have. Well, a, may, I, may I interject something? Please do. When you say long coat are you trying not to say trench coat no it wasn't a trench coat it was a weird like wrap it looked like it looked like it could like this wrap around something piece of fabric it wasn't a trench coat it, it was a commander salamander oh it was jacket. a commander salamander okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. i might have mentioned that yeah and with a spider on the back and it's, you know i started you know you know grow my hair crazy style and not you know part it in the middle and feather it down the sides and and then it was all over you and know, you're but, talking about mid 80s now Definitely, definitely. Okay, so, so and just to be clear, because this is a point I'm going to make over and over again, um, at no point did you have full leather gear with with studs and all of that. Like, if, no, that that only came last week. <laughs> if you were to watch uh, any any kind of television show or movie that tried to depict uh, punk rock in the '80s, right? Um, it always showed something I'd never seen in my life. Every punk rocker I knew was wearing versions of what you just described homemade weird homemade stuff from shit. stuff yep. from the the surplus store yep. old military clothing yep. if someone got a leather jacket i mean it was cool i knew a couple people with leather jackets and i got one when i was 18 sure but it sure as hell wasn't a, an army of weird was, skinheads no. with spikes and liberty no. spike haircuts no it was, that was that was pretty rare that's At least just a, that's just what people's imagination of punk rock was in america well yeah absolutely and i think it was perpetuated by the the, the handful of times that punk rock got on television or the handful of times that you'd see a movie with punk rock in it, or the occasional punk at the shopping mall who's really trying to make a statement. You know, yeah. those those sort of myths got perpetuated that way. But it's he, a hard thing to maintain, and it was very expensive. I remember when I had my mohawk. I mean, I was using a half a can of Aquanet hairspray every day. Dave. <laughs> that was that was pricey. That hey, didn't go very often. Can you still smell it? You mean smell the Aquanet? Yeah. I mean, in if, your, I, if in I close your, my, I real in your mind. Yeah. If I close my eyes. Oh yeah. 
It's, I still smell it. It's great. It's beautiful. Aquanet. <laughs> I, yeah, there's nothing like it. It's horrifying. Okay, so uh, this takes you up to what, 15? Yeah, I was, I was around 14. Maybe I was even 16 by the time this all... By the time I was fully decked out Commander Salamander plus the you know the um, Chuck Taylors in multiple colors. Oh, yeah. Did and, you trade with friends so you got two different yeah, colors? Yes, so we'd have two yeah. different colors. And then, then you know, I I would say by then it was, you know, I was probably 16 ish or so 15 16 i think you're right yeah nice yeah when do you start playing music well i didn't start playing music until well i mean i i was playing music i got my first drum set i would say right around that time but i wasn't really playing music for another few months after that until a couple other kids who had discovered punk in school as well decided to come over to my house one day because i called them i said listen my parents go to work when they go to go to work why don't you guys come over and we'll get drunk and bring a guitar and you know one guy you bring a guitar the other guy you know you just scream and we'll form a band and they came over and we did just that we 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 got drunk and i had my drum set how old were you 15 16 17 it was right in that zone i can't remember you know it you know specifically but right in that zone but you had to hide the drinking from your parents when they got home later oh god of course yeah absolutely and you were good at that i was i was great at it, of course you didn't get sure. caught no no, no, no. Did they know and just ignore it? No, because I had a conversation about with them about it about two years ago when I went to see them on the East Coast. And my mother was like, I can't believe, I, I can't believe that some of these things happened without me knowing about it. She was mortified. Ah, my mom's done similar things. Yeah, she was mortified. Although there was less to tell because I didn't do a lot of that. But okay, Yeah, my mom was really, she was she was mortified. <laughs> and and I, should, I just put a disclaimer out there that, you know, she did her best to, to, to raise me well. But Oh, but you got to do what you got to do. You know, whatever, you know, it's like, who cares? Okay, so the point it's, is. It is what it is. It's it is a what story. It is. It's just, it's just, ha- it, it's what happens. So it's no big deal. But the point though is, is that we got together to play music. We put out a cassette recorder, hit record and play. We declared ourselves to be biodegradable grandmother. And that was we, the name of the band? Yeah. And we recorded uh, what we called our demo. It was basically 45 minutes of us just playing songs that we were writing almost on the spot. Where is that tape? I can find it. You own it? I'm sure I do. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure I have the original somewhere. And do you so that's one task that we've definitely come up with today. Yeah. I'd like to hear Biodegradable Grandmother. Yeah, the year yeah, the year of the happy penis demo was nineteen eighty seven. And I think that I still have it. <laughs> Biodegradable grandmother, the year of the happy penis. Yeah, that was the demo tape. Yeah. Cool. And it started circulating around my high school and people were like, What is this? Like what's happening? <laughs> oh, you guys actually released <laughs> oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean we just started <laughs> making copies for people <laughs> and people were like, What is this thing? And you know, it had just these crazy songs on it. Like there was a song called Senseless Brutality about killing animals, and there was a song about, about pumping gas, and it was just crazy. It was just all this random garbage. But I remember we, we got together an, again another time and tried it and recorded a second demo, but it was just again, just us ple- praying, pressing record and play. Mm-hmm. But I remember that day the doorbell rang. Okay, and I walk upstairs and I open the door and there's this total dirtbag kid that I'd never seen before standing there. And I go, hey. And he says, hey. And there was this awkward silence. And he says, I've got a guitar. I was like, cool, come in. So he comes inside. You didn't like, know this person. I had no idea who he was. He just he was some kid from school or some friend of some kid this from school. This is a scene out of a movie. So he comes in and and plays music too with us. It was it was very freeform and weird and <laughs> and punk rock and awesome. But biodegradable grandmother never played a show, uh, never did anything else other than put out the uh, the demo that we just circulated around my school, and that was it. That was where the, where music started. Me playing drums. That's incredible. And then you got into 
at least one more serious band. Yeah, I mean, Process of Elimination was yes. the next iteration. I have that seven inch kicking around in this room somewhere. Yeah, where I where I'm named Ivan, um, <laughs> and I'm named Ivan on the record because you know by this time. There was a kid from uh, Connecticut Junior Republic, which Connecticut Junior Republic was the uh, the place where, you know, it was a reform school for kids who were having, you know, trouble or, you know, violence issues and whatnot. So this kid um, named, named Todd, yeah, this kid named Todd from CJR, uh, Connecticut Junior Republic, came to our school, our high school, found out about me and us as punk rockers and formed kind of a friendship alliance with me. And he and I decided that we were going to make and distribute anarchist propaganda in paper form around the school, but we didn't want the school to know it was us. So we came up with this, this, these names, personas. He was Sid Tetrazzini and I was Ivan Tetrazzini. <laughs> so we would say, you know, like, you know, the, the, you know, the school administration is this, we must over, you know, overcome and, you know, do not submit to the authority of the, you know, of the oppressor and all this stuff, Let me jump. but, but oh. we'd sign it. Sid and Ivan. Okay. And eventually somebody ratted him out as Sid, but they never told who Ivan was. So I kept the name Ivan and that's why I'm Ivan on the uh, process of elimination record. Nice. Now you, you were printing and distributing anarchist material. Yeah. And you're the kid that read the encyclopedia when you were what? Seven? <laughs> like, yeah, seven. So, so unlike so many of us, you, legitimately were looking into the theory of anarchy and trying to educate your your peers as to anarchy that's that's ambitious but i i looking back on it i don't remember it that way but maybe the, there must have been something there i mean it must have been something there. when i remember it i just remember it as me being an idiot just a, this you know idiot trying to you know make the teachers mad but but it wasn't just something there. It wasn't just know. like photographing the back of a Sex Pistols record. No, 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 no. Okay. We, we were making these like cut and paste flyers that talked about authority and and talked about just the ways that the students could take over the school and and kick the teachers out and and all this sort of thing. And it was, <laughs> well, stupid. A, it was a, a realistic goal. Yeah, it was just childish and kick stupid. Kick the teachers you out. Know, yeah, like and we're gonna we're gonna educate ourselves. God damn it, we have <laughs> we have the we have the ability. So you in your mind, if the teachers were gone, you would still come to school and teach yourself lessons. Absolutely, everybody. Here we are by and yourself. Collectively, we will learn trigonometry. We need not the teachers and their oppressive rules, laws, and ways. Learn about the American Revolution in oh. our in our in our class. I I really love that. It was pretty. It was pretty ridiculous. So, yeah. So, process of elimination actually ended up playing some shows. We probably played thirty or forty shows. We played the Anthrax once, and we played a bunch of shows up at Bard College and various colleges and around the the, the north the northeast. No one knew who we are. I mean, no one to this day has ever heard of us. I mean, there's literally like. I can name three or four people who'd even remember that we even existed, but it was fun. It was a fun project and put out a seven inch and called it good. Cool. And was that the last, uh, was that the last band you did before you came to Seattle? It was the last band I did before I came to Seattle. But what happened was when I moved to Seattle in summer of 91, after having visited, I'd made the choice, okay, I'm letting process of elimination, you know, come to rest. When I came home for winter break from school, so that's winter 91, 92, my friends had started two bands. One was called The Pissed, who later became sort of this punk rock legendary outfit. And the other was called Brutally Familiar, who mm. were, I, I always thought, really cool and who now still exist, actually, as a band called M13 from Brooklyn. And M13, oh, okay. with some of the same members, has taken mm. on the, the Brutally Familiar catalog and is still playing some of those songs. But there was this two-week stretch where we recorded the Brutally Familiar demo and the Piss demo, both with me on drums. And then I came back to Seattle, and that was the end of uh, the Connecticut music experience for me. All right. And so then you come to Seattle. Yep. Uh, you 
go right into Cornish. Right into Cornish, yeah. Okay. Studying studying Shakespeare and vocal diction and text analysis and physical theater and acting and all all in all all those. Okay, things. I've got some questions, but you know what? We're gonna have to pause for a break. I've got a commercial that needs to run. Okay. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ten Seconds of Deafening Silence. We recommend you use this time to reflect on the shattered dreams of your childhood. And we're back. Greg, who was the first person you met when you came to Seattle? The first actual person? The the first person, I'll spread it. I'll, I'll make it a little more. The, the first person that you still know today, the first person from the, the Seattle music scene, oh, since the, that was kind of the, that I think, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would say that the Northwest punk and hardcore scene was uh, uh, basically the thing that led you into music and yeah. into all the, a lot of the endeavors that you're still doing no, today. Absolutely. I know who it is already. <clears throat> who was it? Joel DeGraff, singer of Undertow. Oh, Joel DeGraff. Saw him last week. We Where? meet in LA. We meet every month in Los Angeles to this day. Yeah. We meet. Every, That's fantastic. Every month. The last have, time I saw Joel, I bought a bunch of records off him. Awesome. I remember that. I remember he when was he sold them on the sidewalk yep, because he decided that he didn't want to sell his hardcore records for overinflated prices or price them on eBay. So he literally put his hardcore records out on the sidewalk. There was no eBay yet. Really? Yeah. He, I remember he, it was, I mean, it was months away, Yep. but I was still selling out of the back of maximum rock and roll. Oh, cause I heard this story years later when eBay existed. Right. So yeah. I remember what, I remember hearing about it and I remember when he did that or maybe it was even well, a year pre, later. You know, I could be wrong. I might be mixing things up, but I remember getting a bunch of records from him. Oh no, there are definitely a bunch of records to be had and you got them for a dollar or $2 or $3 for seven inches. I paid him a little better. Okay. But it was a, I think, I think I missed the first group of people. I don't know that he put everything out because yeah. I heard about it and then I got in touch with him. Wasn't he living in the Caravilla? He might've been. Yeah. Over there on, on Denny. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was might Caravilla, been, yeah. but it was one of those classic old old buildings that all the hardcore dudes used to live in. Absolutely. He might've been, but yeah, I mean, I still see Joel. I see him every month. We got, uh, we, we go to this Chinese massage place in Los Angeles and one of these places that has the neon sign in the window and you walk in and they don't say a word to you. They just point to these tables and back and you go in back. It's fully clothed. You got a creepy massage. I didn't say creepy massage. I said, oh, Chinese I, said massage. Creepy I think massage. you're racist. You said creepy when I said Chinese. No, how dare you? Dave no, no, Larson. please understand. That it doesn't matter what word you put before the word massage. In my mind, it's creepy automatically. I think you need to get closer in touch with your body, and I think we should change the format of this podcast and let me massage you. I think we need to Wait, enter the new stage so of our relationship. So you want to do a podcast called Let Me Massage You? <laughs> I'm going to work on that. I need more experience at the Chinese massage place before I have enough expertise to do that. So Joel DeGraff and I, every month, we meet in Los Angeles, yeah. and we go to this massage place. Sure. There we go. And, and it's great. <laughs> And you walk in, they don't say a word to you. They don't even smile. They just point in the back. There's like 20 beds in the back and you lay down on any one of these like single massage tables and it's a full body massage for 20 bucks. Honest, honest answer. Have you ever had it proposed that the massage go further? Never. It's not a naked massage place. You're fully clothed. You're wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Okay. Or a long sleeve shirt or a hoodie. All right. Well, I've just seen too many movies, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, it's never, it's not an option at this particular massage it's place. A, it's an option like two blocks from here on Aurora. Evidently, evidently <laughs> you know more about creepy massage than I do. I worked in the casino industry for like seven years. I remember. And a lot of those dudes would head out to some, some places nearby. 
Wow. Um, after their shifts and stuff. So, so there's a potential market for my podcast locally is what you're saying. Let me massage you? Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. But you might so – that's the thing. They won't expect, you know – I, I don't really know how it's going to work because doesn't the person – isn't the person getting massaged? Don't they normally like get really calm, maybe even fall asleep? You mean at a creepy massage place? Any massage place. But if are you going to be talking to the person you're massaging or are you going to be trying to convince a person to that doesn't want to get massaged to let you massage them? I think that it would be a far more interesting podcast to go up to people in completely normal, everyday environments – like you talk to the bus driver while he's driving down Aurora and the idea is to get him to let me massage him. So, you know, hey, I want to interview you for my podcast. And he says, hey, I'm trying to drive my bus right now. <laughs> and I say, no, 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 really. Let me oh, mas- let me massage you. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of a game that I used to play <laughs> when I had a Blackberry. I used to have a Blackberry with okay. a scroll wheel on it. Yeah. I don't know if you remember the Blackberry with the scroll wheel. Mm-mm. Okay. Well, it has a scroll wheel on the side. And that's how you'd scroll through your contacts. So I used to play a game with my friends where I would hand them the BlackBerry and they would scroll through my friends and they couldn't look at the BlackBerry. They would just scroll up, down, up, down, 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 up, 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 down, 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 wherever they ended up, hand me the phone. And whoever was on that phone, I had to call them and ask them out on a date. Oh. Think about that for a second. What happens when they land on the local property management business that represents the lofts down the street that I really want to rent a loft from. What happens when they land on the ex-girlfriend? What happens when they land on the ex-girlfriend? Exactly. That's the risk. That's the game. That's what makes it exciting and fun. Did you call every time? I called every time. Because you're a man with standards. It's it's integrity. You have to. If I say that I'm going to call and ask somebody out on a date, then we're playing the game. So... I can't remember how many times we played. There's at least, at least, I mean, I want to say at least half a dozen, 10, you know, maybe at the, the least and most. But I do remember three in particular, one of which it landed on this, uh, this property management company down the street. And I had to call and just sort of just be like, hey, so um, just wondering if you have any, if you have any, you know, op- uh, you know, current openings, any loss available. I was wondering if, um, would you, would you be interested in would you be interested in maybe telling me a little bit more about them over dinner sometime? Okay, so awkward. And of course people would get off the phone and just be like, um, no, you can come down here to the office. But then there was one where I yeah, I had to call a, a restaurant, ask if they deliver and you know, you know, if they'd be interested in having lunch with me and maybe delivering the lunch and they were, you know, it's so awkward and terrible. It's a terrible game. But um it it speaks to that idea of let me massage you. It's that awkward. I think it would be that awkward. Yeah. Why are we talking about this? What get, is this podcast? It goes where it goes. Okay. And that's just how it happens. All right. Let me massage you. <laughs> I like that. Well, there's something, you know how something you can take away from this experience. It's not just you giving to others with your stories. Right. You now have something to aspire to. A potential new podcast. Or just lifestyle. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. I'll bring it up with Joel <laughs> next meet, week, next month when I see you him You meet Joel DeGraff. Uh, Joel is not an undertow at this point. He's already... Gone no, no, I met, I met I met Joel at the night of Poison Idea, you know, in 1991. He was singing for Undertow at the time. So we became friends then and stayed friends after he left, was kicked out of, after his relationship with Undertow ended. And then, you know, and then Undertow continued and he did Said Child. And I was in Said Child for about four minutes. And then oh, we, we stayed friends after that. I forgot that. Yeah, I played bass when Said Child played... Out on the east side, I almost want to say at one of the early Modest Mouse shows or something like that. Or Probably. some, you know. Yeah, I remember. I played bass. Okay. 
I thought that uh, Pettibone was already singing by the time they played with Poison Idea. No. So it's possible it's possible that I'm off a little bit on some of my details before. But okay. we're very old, and that was a long time ago. Because you're talking about ni- between 91 and 93. I don't feel old. Oh, no, no. And neither do I, but a lot of time has gone by. You were talking about antennas on rooftops. But more to the point, Dave, <laughs> let me massage you. <laughs> you're massaging um, my, my mind. See? It's already yes. started. This and, is, and this some is of the it subtlety. Is... It's getting looser. So yeah, this is the subtlety of what I do. <laughs> okay. Um, so. So Joel DeGraff and I hang out all the time to this day, meaning he's the one guy from the first guy I met who I connected with, who I stay friends with. We talk about music. We actually might be writing some music together sometime soon. We've that's very about. cool. Yeah, I love Joel. I, I mean, I haven't, I, yeah, I haven't heard anything from Joel in a long yeah. time, so that's nice to hear. Yeah. Um, so said child. So what said child is, and this whole thing we're talking about, is undertow split apart. And basically broke up for a little while, and then Undertow reformed in the modern version of Undertow that people who know Undertow would have basically heard of. Undertow did a demo and a, and a comp song and a, and a seven inch with resolution, with Joel singing. Yep. But then the Pettibone vocals, Damien on bass, Undertow is the one that did Stalemate at uh-huh. both ends, Control. So that's the stuff, and did most of the touring. So yes. that's the that's the Undertow that most people know. At this at that time, Joel and Seth got together and started said child and yep. Damien from undertow was in both bands. And there was a kind of a tug of war yep. pulling Damien. Are you going to go undertow? Or are you going to go said child? And said child was heavily Smith's influenced. Is that, is that a fair, it would it be more, or was it more Morrissey influenced? I, you know, they were, they were influenced by the character of Morrissey, not the sound of his music. Okay. Joel was very, very Morrissey influenced. So was Seth. But I mean, to, you know, to, to their credit, so was John Pettibone. I mean, John loved Morrissey and the Smiths as well, but they were influenced by his character and by the way he carried himself and what he wanted and you know, the way he presented himself to the world. And I think that was the split. Yeah, those guys would do their hair and then go to the, the, Cemetery and take pictures with flowers. Yes. Whereas John was just loving the songs, I think. And I don't want to speak for him. I'm sure you'll have him on the podcast. But, Absolutely. You know, but, but, you know, Joel most if definitely. If I do another one. Yeah. If, if, there might not be. <laughs> because after this, the, the whole character <laughs> of this will change as I massage you. So, so. Um, let me massage you. Let me massage you. So, yeah. So, so they were heavily. And there was another band in the midst of that too. Uh, Seth. And some of the others did a band called Bridgestone for a very short amount of time. Oh, man. Yeah. You just uncovered just barely some little faint memory in my mind. Yeah, because I remember, I remember going to a couple Bridgestone practices. And Undertow had broken up. There was yet no said child. And Seth, and I, I want to believe John Pettibone, but he could correct me on that, were doing Bridgestone. So there was this interim band that was starting that I thought was really cool. Was it like real New Age records influenced? As I remember, but I mean... Because you're saying Bridgestone, so I'm just thinking Stone Telling. I, I, I barely remember, you know. I'm not even... I'm not even sure. I just remember being at the practice and thinking this is going to be great. This is the next big thing. Nice. Which, by the way, I also thought when Bill Baker, those nights at Kinko's when I was working on my Aftermath chapbook, Bill Baker said to me, I've got to play you something that's going to be the next big thing. And I was like, all right, let me have it. And what did he play? He played me the Earth Crisis demo. He said, this is a band I want to put out. <laughs> he wanted to put out Earth Crisis, and he had just put out Ringworm. And he put out he, 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 he put out Ringworm, that's right. And he played me Earth Crisis, and I lost my mind. I had never heard <laughs> anything like it in my life. And I honestly, that was a turning point for me. I didn't realize that hardcore could sound like that. Because up until then, it hadn't sounded like that. And, and Yeah, it was sudden, a real... 
It was huge. It was probably two or three in the morning. We were at Kinko's and he's playing me this cassette. And I just thought, that's it. The, the whole, the lights are going out. The whole world's changing. It's pretty great. So anyway. It's a big deal. And, and you had already had these revelations in your, in your musical appreciation and in your way of thinking when you were younger. So now you're talking about you're in call, you're in your twenties and you having another one of these hits. Cause you hear earth crisis. Yeah, I was 21 at the time, 21, 22. And I mean, yeah. And you have to imagine, I mean, you know, what did earth crisis go on to do? They went on to do so much, love them, hate them, love, hate what they did later in the career. It doesn't matter at the time. You know, when, when, when those, when those songs came out, the earth fell apart. I mean, the earth fell apart. So the first time ever hearing such a thing, it's kind of like the first time I was, remember it being at Joel DeGraff's house and he got a package in the mail, he pulls it out and it's LP of the, uh, it's the judge LP and we put it on and we had never heard a record sound like that. A hardcore record wasn't produced like that. And we literally didn't speak. We listened to side A, beginning to end, side B, beginning to end. We didn't speak. We just sat there, mouths hanging And you're open. talking about bringing it down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we couldn't we couldn't speak. So it was just one of those moments when Bill played me that Earth Crisis. Uh, it, I don't know if it was a demo, or I don't know if it was studio demos of what became the Firestorm EP, but whatever it was... We were getting a lot of stuff from Ron Gardepi at the time. Yeah. I mean, usually that's... For a long time, that's how it happened. I mean, I heard I heard the early demos of uh, Start Today. I heard Chung King. I heard a lot of stuff. Probably Earth Crisis for the first time. Ringworm. Uh, all that Cleveland stuff. Uh, integrity. It was all coming from Ron. Ron would get was doing Overkill, and he'd get all this stuff, and he'd record it, and he'd say he he would do a zine with like a a tape comp or a demo that came with it, and he was just passing stuff off because he was just planting the seeds, man. Yeah, he, he was, was just trying to get everything going. Let's you know what? Just for a minute, let's identify. Let's just identify how significant Ron Gardepi was and and is in terms of the history of of the Pacific Northwest and hardcore. And I know you'll have him on as a podcast guest. Very soon. Okay, awesome. So, you know what? Let's not even say much more other than to give respect respect where respect is due to the guy who truly was the groundbreaker in the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely. No question the, about. The 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 hardcore scene in Seattle would look nothing like it did without Ron. He yeah. Ron would go so far as finding you a job and a place to live. That's how I came to Seattle. I live in. I came to Seattle because I was in Bellingham, and Ron called me up and said, "Larson, I've got a place for you to live, and I got a job for you at Kinkos. You send down the application. You've got the job. Let's do this." So he he actually got me um, an apartment with Derek Harn. Where, where did you live? Did you live at the at the dorm? Basically, by the dorm. I mean, the, there was a, on Denny Way. There was an apartment building where all the hardcore kids lived for a while. No. Okay. No. When I um, came to Seattle. Derek and I were going to get an apartment together. He was already living in a place um, down off of, down by, um, off Aurora, down by um, Fremont. Okay. And I slept on his couch and rode the bus into Kinko's in the U District. I did that for two or three weeks. And then he decided he was going to move in with his girlfriend. I remember this and that apartment. Yep. <laughs> and at that point, um, or I, remember, I, yeah, at least I, I moved in. Later, yeah. With Jen Schneeweiss. Yes. And you know the significance yes. that Schneeweiss and, and Derek Harn had been a couple before, and yes. that's how I had met Derek the first time. Yep. So they both came from Salt Lake City. That's right. These are all significant events. Yeah, they <laughs> and, are significant. and as this podcast goes on and all these people come on, this is all going to basically be this woven together fabric of where we are. And all you're going to talk from. to Derek. If, he, if he'll come on. Okay. You have to ask him. He about... and I have not spoken about this yet. Okay. But there's a, a very famous hardcore picture with him in it taken in Salt Lake City. I will say no more and ask him about it. It's great. Famous hardcore picture? Uh, I mean, famous from 
Salt Lake City at the time. I mean, oh, at the time, it's not. Time. It's not trial with mustaches. No, it's not trial with mustaches. No, okay, that was, I got that around here somewhere. Yeah, no, that was that was decades later. This is. I mean, don't get me started talking about <laughs> Salt Lake City. Salt Lake, very near and dear to my heart. Um, but let's uh, let's just let Derek handle Salt Lake from from uh, from that point forward. Okay, so we've met now. We're yep. in Seattle. Yep. So the very significant point in Seattle is the summer of '94. Everything comes together. Undertow, Apple, then LP comes out. Kids have come in from all around. We're, we're starting to get shows with lots and lots of people. On the east side, which for people that are listening to this that don't know the Seattle area, um, Lake Washington is to the east of Seattle, and there are cities Bellevue, Redmond, Kirkland on the east side. And for a long time, th- there was a uh, there was a law in Seattle called the Teen Dance Ordinance. It was mm-hmm. some footloose fucking thing yep. that made it so that you couldn't put on an all ages show in the city of Seattle. You yeah. could, but there were all kinds of rules. And Kate Becker who is an incredibly important person in the music scene around here, um, was able to get together a teen center in Redmond, Washington, which wasn't that far away from us, right? and get an old firehouse and put on some incredible shows. And some right. of the best shows, some of the uh, pictures of Undertow that are the coolest pictures people have seen that are in their layouts occurred at that teen center, at sure. the old firehouse. Epic, epic shows. And it brought together people from the east side and Seattle in the different music scenes. So when you talk about like the Modest Mouse guys, you know, a lot those guys did other bands too that would that everybody kind of started to know each other. And before long, it all became one big scene in the nineties right. with tons and tons of influence. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah. So ninety four, we're riding around in a Cadillac with the top cut off. <laughs> you have graduated. I graduated, right. I just graduated Cornish. I did not see your graduation thing that you did. You did some kind of live event. I did? Uh, you mean... Final or live... There was something oh, with you smoking cigarettes. There was there was two things. Well, what happened was, in the course of my Cornish experience, I was having a hard time for a number of different reasons, but one of which was I just wasn't, I wasn't digging the school. And at the end of my junior year, the director of the theater department called me into his office and he said, I'll never forget. And this is almost a direct quote. He said, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I can see that you don't like this program or this school and we don't like you either. And he said, I'm going to give you two options for your senior year. One is that you design your own major, your own class structure. You propose it to us. We accept it or we deny it. And then if we deny it, you're, you're out. If we accept it, you may take your own suggested classes. Cause he said, you've obviously got some talent. You just obviously are not at all meshing with our program. And then you may graduate with a bachelor of fine arts degree in theater rather than acting. Or if you turn down this option to submit this proposal, you go home to Connecticut. You have 24 hours to come back. So he was trying to know. kick you out of the city. He was, well, I mean, basically he was, you know, saying you're done. Okay. So yeah, he's going to bring me to the edge of town. <laughs> And he was going to say, you've lost your Seattle privileges. Yeah. Don't come back. So I I came back the next day and I said, okay, let's do this. Like here's, here's, you know, I, I, you know, a course called approaches to fiction and there was a movement course and there was a vocal course and there was all these different courses. And one was an independent study in, in, uh, in, in theater and, and creative writing. So to do that, I had to do four senior projects throughout the year. And there was a teacher at the time named, uh, Susan Corzat and no one liked her. And I didn't, like her at the time for whatever reason. I'm sure she was a very nice woman and very talented and all that. But at the time, you know, I, all I knew is that she didn't like 
uh, cigarettes being smoked in the theater. So I wrote one of my senior projects was called Smoke 'em If You Got 'em, uh-huh. and all that happened in the entire presentation was just characters smoking cigarettes. All the characters <laughs> in the show just constantly Wait, smoking. Like and this it, was just to piss off the teacher. It was just because I knew that she, well, she was required to show up to grade me, and I knew she wouldn't show up. So I knew it would it would, it would be a conundrum for the school if there was a requirement to you know, but she wouldn't show up. So it's called Smoke 'em If You Got 'em. And Ron I saw it. I didn't see it. Ron Gardeby was there? Yeah, he told me about it. Amazing. I had no idea. I've, I've, I've forgotten that he was there. But there was, yeah, there was another <laughs> and I'm senior. I'm like, what? Smoking? Huh? Yeah, but that was one of the seniors' projects. And then there was another one that actually, arguably, well, not even arguably, it was a lot more interesting. The smoking, if you got him, was just garbage theater plus cigarettes. I mean, it was terrible. But there was um, one called The Feast of Fools, which was held over two nights. That was my final senior project. And it, it, it took the, the historical tradition in the church of the lower clergy having one day per year when they upended the church hierarchy and were able to make fun of the upper hierarchy. It took that tradition and transposed it into the modern day setting for theater education and, and, and arts education. And what we did was my classmates, the cohorts and I that I roped into this cast, we made fun of the school. And that's saying it really lightly yeah we very in my opinion very creatively completely upended the school and it was nuts like we it was there was two nights of the show the theater was packed and it was so impactful on the school that it became a tradition at the school every year to do a feast of fools oh until 10 years later when the tradition was banned because it got out of the theater and into the campus and kids were literally like upending all the rules at the school. The last year that the Feast of Fools happened, there was a group of masked students who ran into a dance class and kidnapped dancers hmm. mid-dance, mid-dance out of their classes. And uh, people felt very threatened and the school banned, banned the, uh, the, whole, the whole tradition. Now, now I'm going to go ahead and make some connections here. Ivan Tetrazzini. Well, Ivan Tetrazzini, <laughs> uh, he took a year of mask making ah. before he came to Seattle. And now 10 years on, masked intruders are kidnapping people from the school at the event you created? Ten, but keep in mind, this oh, is no, 10 years after I graduated. Oh, come on. But still, Revenge the is not me. dish Beth served. <laughs> but it wasn't me it wasn't me doing the kidnapping best but, served vegan yeah best served vegan but what was cool about it was that it was just it was cool because we think of the work that we do and the influence we have on other people as being insignificant potentially or just not having any consequence in in terms of our future and then all of a sudden here comes you know news to me hey greg did you know that there's a feast of fools this year too i'm like wait i graduated last year <laughs> and and then the year after and the year after and i went to see a few of these productions i'm like oh my god these kids are going to get kicked out of school and then eventually it, it turned into like complaints and near riots and they stopped it they stopped it which was great so um not great they stopped it, it was great, it was great that, that it went, went on. on oh it was great i loved it so when you said I went to your senior project, I thought that, you know, I th- you missed the senior project. I, I missed, thought you meant, yeah, I thought you meant Feast of Fools. Fools. Okay, and I didn't know about that. I actually thought, in my mind, you doing the smoking thing was the that was, the that, was that was the weakest of them, meaning that was theatrically the least interesting and just the most annoying. But it was, it was of note to Ron, because Ron was still straight edge at the time, uh-huh. and you were smoking, and it right. was like an art piece. It's like, well, he's not really smoking. He's yeah. acting smoking, yeah, which has been a, an issue. For you and me and our friendship. Uh, we, we're not there yet. But uh, we, we will be. <laughs> if we got time. Uh, we got some more time <laughs> to go through some stuff. So when does Headline start? Because Headline is the band that became Trial. Yep. Um, so it's 1993. 
three or four, 94. You're right. Summer 94. Holy everything shit. is a summer Every, 94. Everything is summer 94. That's the, that's the kickoff. There, there are two really significant times in, in Northwest hardcore. Um, and I, this is, let's, I mean, let's ignore everything prior to 1994. Okay. But I, I'll go with that. There, yeah. There's, there's the paradox university district scene, the, the rise of champion and stay gold and all yep. of those bands. Yep. Entropy project. And exactly. And that whole, that, that whole place that, that, that ended up becoming Mars Hill down in Ballard or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, yep. but when it was in the U district and all of those people came together and things, uh, something really, that was also Northwest hardcore.com. That was when that came to prevalence. Yep. So, so prominence. So that is one of the times, but the other time is the summer of 1994. I agree. Totally and agree. it's, it's magic. So everything what, was amazing. So what happened to me, having graduated summer 94, is I was realizing that I wanted my involvement in hardcore to be more political, or at least my involvement in the world as a citizen to be more political. And I remember at the time, I had just gotten back from the Inside Out tour, where I was speaking on the Inside Out tour. So I was highly politicized with radical politics relating to Native American rights and land rights. I wanted to do a zine, because of course people were doing print zines. You know, that was, the Inside Out tour was August 93. So throughout that year, I'm reading books about radical politics and native politics. And I want to do a zine that talks about these issues. And at the same time, I'm, you know, becoming just uh, educated and aware about, you know, other issues just, and I can, you know, name a bunch of them, but I remember, you know, sexual assault and rape was becoming very important to me at the time and, and spreading the word about that. And then I remember there was, there was this, it was spring of 94. There was a news story. And I mean, it, I, I found out about it before the news just because I happened to know somebody in the building where it happened. But a young woman on Capitol Hill went out to a bar, invited a guy home with her, and uh, he raped her in her apartment and raped her throughout the night. And at one point in the night, um, took a, a break for himself and went into the bathroom. And as soon as she he was out of you know the bed and into the bathroom, she had a uh, a gun, a hidden gun somewhere in this apartment. And and shot this guy as I'm remembering it. And some, as I'm telling the story, I'm thinking, did she stab him or did she shoot him? I think she shot the guy in the stomach. I'm almost positive she shot him in the okay. stomach as he came out of the bathroom. And he stumbled out of the apartment and um, bleeding to death was pounding on doors with these bloody hands. Um, oh, I down. remember that. Yes, okay. right. Stumbling down the hallway um, and died on the floor. And a friend of mine living in the building called me and was like, you got to get over here. There's this guy shot here. And I think he was a rapist. So I ran down to the building and the cops had literally just left and taken the body out. And I walked in with my whatever camera I had at the time and took pictures of the bloodstains on the floor, the handprints on the wall. And there was something about that that was so potent. Well, obviously it's so potent. But for me at the time, I thought this is real. Like this is really happening in our city. And that became the cover images for the zine I put out called Headline Communications. Yep. And that was, I mean, I'd done one like quick issue before, but that was like the second issue that was had a cover and and had a layout and it talked about native politics. And I remember um, friend of mine, uh, a female friend of mine, wrote a, wrote an article on sexual assault. And then there was issues about the Western Shoshone Defense Project or articles on the Western Shoshone Defense Project and, and other things, ways to get involved in politics and whatnot. And that was that was also. 1994 around that time that when and that zine was called headline communications so the idea of forming a band wasn't actually mine it was Derek Harn and Tim McIntosh decided that they wanted to do an old school hardcore band that had elements of 
you know, something more messages in it, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, old school, but with, with messages. And, and they asked me if I wanted to sing and I was just, I was, I didn't know how to sing. I was clueless, but I thought it would be cool to have the band called a headline and do a zine called headline. And maybe it could all be tied in together. And we later decided to change the name just to get some distance. So it wasn't like, Oh, is that a magazine or is that a band? So we decided to, uh, so there are no the releases name. as headline. There was no a demo. There was a, the trial demo was released at the first show where we were trial at the old firehouse. Okay. We were headline up until then. And in fact, I think the flyers for the show made by Matisse Cachavars said headline on the flyers. And we showed up and we said, this band is called trial played the set and we had demos for sale. That nice. the trial. Demos, okay. Cassette I demos. definitely remember that show. I definitely remember this all coming together and then trial goes, um, at some point it, it fractures off and becomes a new version of Trial and Himsa. That was, yeah, it was much later. It was much later. Yeah, it was okay, years I'm jump, later. jumping ahead. Well, because just to give a timeline, Summer 94 happens, you know, Headline Communication, Zine comes out, Trial kind of form, or Headline forms Fall of 94, and then the demo release show was very early, January, February 1995. That was the demo release show. Okay. So that's when things started rolling. Right. And when 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 do you see, because there's a point where Trial kind of becomes a thing. Honestly, it was a while before that happened, but when it when I realized something's going to happen with the band was that first night because we brought 70 I can't remember how many demos, 72 demos just because we got a price break. We were going down to um what was the cassette place? You remember I, the cassette? I've made I made cassettes there. Yeah, I, I know. can't remember um, what it's called. Anyway, there's a cassette making place. Gardapi will certainly yeah, yeah, fill yeah. us in on I know. what that cassette place was. I know. Um Martin Audio? Oh, that sounds right. Martin Audio. It was called Martin Audio. Okay. So we were getting cassettes made at Martin Audio, and and they were giving us a price break because the cassettes I was buying weren't new cassettes. I wanted to save money. So I'd gone down to Martin Audio, and I would ask them, what cassettes have you made for bands that never paid for their cassettes? And they were blanking those cassettes. They were erasing them and letting us use those cassettes. So some of those early trial demos with, say, 12, 15 minutes of music were on 90-minute cassettes. Were, were any of them on dumpster cassettes? Because remember, there was a company up on Capitol Hill that was throwing away cassettes and also these interesting plastic containers that yeah, they'd come absolutely, in. Absolutely, 100%. We brought them down to... I remember bringing at least... I think that that might have been your doing I made me. excursion demo cassettes yeah, off those, I was going to say, we did... I remember doing some trial, uh, some trial demos on those at one point, but we so, stuck to... So if, if anyone ever ever questioned your punk rock credibility, you dumpstered cassettes. I wore a Commander Salamander <laughs> jacket with a <laughs> spider on it. What are you talking with a, about? With a homemade safety pin spider. A homemade safety pin spider. Yeah, that beats everything I did. Okay, so, so anyway, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. So anyway, so so but the the first night of that show, we just had tons of these demos. Not because we thought, oh, everyone's gonna buy these demos, but rather we just had tons of them because they were so cheap, we just made them by the yeah. ton. So we brought seventy demos and I remember thinking, I, I hope we sell ten or fifteen and we sold all of them within the When this gone. is at the firehouse. At the firehouse they're all See gone. that's the thing, we all got a little bit uh uh, not jaded, but fooled by the firehouse because it became this like just a thing to do on the weekends, no matter what band was playing. So, I mean, there were undertow shows where like seaweed would play where like 600 people would be there. Right. And it's, so this idea that like, Oh, we sold, cause uh, when I was in that band lit that became Screwjack. Yes. We sold, we didn't make that many. I think we made 32 or something of our, and we they were gone as fast as they could go. And then people were like, what, you don't have any more tapes left. And it's like, no, 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 no. That, 
there weren't that many of you that really I didn't right. I liked all the screaming you know I, right. I, I was very surprised by that. but I think that there was a, a weird demographic going on where it was it was in part the Seattle hardcore kids who because of the teen dance ordinance didn't have all ages venues to go to as as much as they would like I mean there was the Velvet Elvis mm -hmm. the OK Hotel was 21 and over at that point by then I'm pretty sure I don't know how the OK Hotel got away with I, 18 and over well it was yeah let's do this Let's delve right now, because it's a good place to go into it, into this teen dance ordinance thing. Okay. So people kind of understand what was going on in okay. Seattle. And I, 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 can, I can tell you what I remember how it started. There was sure. a place called the Monastery. Uh-huh. And the guy that ran the Monastery, and mm -hmm. I don't know who this person is. I just know the stories I've heard about him. Apparently, he was using it as a place, as a front for drugs and prostitution. Sure. Okay, and supposedly on. prostitution involving underage girls. Um, questionable as to whether or not that's true, but keep going. Questionable as to whether or not that's true, You're but that's zone. how the, that is how the authorities presented it. In yes. Order, so. Yes, absolutely. Of course. Okay, okay. So in response to this, and there was a perceived punk rock problem in Seattle. Uh -huh, at the time. Yep. Yes. Um, so they created a law, an ordinance that was unenforceable, but for a long time, this wasn't figured out. It was the, the rule was you couldn't have, um, people under the age of 18, at concerts with people over the age of 21. Okay. And unless you had a certain amount of fixed seating, because they had to write it in such a way that places like the Paramount and the Moore Theater mm -hmm. and places like that that could afford insurance and all that and that were established places could still have real concerts. They right. just wanted to do away with the punk shows. Right. Um, or dances, as right. they were calling it, for teens. Right. And it was written in such a way that, well, no one knew how it was written because all they knew was that the police would shut down shows and say, there's a teen dance ordinance. This is illegal. Correct. This can't happen. That's right. So at some point you got involved with uh, Lori LeFevre. No, way before. Way before that. Yeah, way before. Well, I remember going to a meeting at the Velvet Elvis. Velvet Elvis was a... Was a way before. A, yeah, uh, but I'm with you. You're right. Okay. You're, not, you're not wrong. I'm just saying that there was there were steps before. Kind of like we're talking about the history of oh, yeah. hardcore and stuff. Before, no, that's, that's, you're, you're, but, on, you're on point. So, so there were ways that like a lot of shows that happened, like in the old... Um, um, there were great shows that Ron and Paula from Whipped used to put on um, at the party hall, 23rd and Madison. I remember it. And those were straight up illegal shows. Yeah. You know? The Offspring played there. The Offspring did play there. Definitely. A lot of really, Jawbreaker. I mean, that's where I saw them the first time. Amazing show. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw Undertow and Aspirin Feast. There. Undertow and Aspirin Feast, Greg Anderson bands, like Galleon's Lap would play. I mean, just Absolutely. incredible stuff would happen there. I saw Undertow countless times, 1007, yep. a whole bunch of times there. It was really good. So they got away with it, but every one of those shows could have just been stopped. Of course, yeah, absolutely. But this, what you guys discovered was that the, the law was essentially unenforceable. Well, okay, so so just a little backstory just to fill, fill yeah. people in. So the monastery was, in fact, a venue. There's a rental car place there now on the site of what was the monastery. And the guy running the monastery um, at, at best was sketchy, a bad business person, and uh, irresponsible. At worst was, you know facilitating drugs yeah. and alcohol, you know, um, happening and, and I don't know about prostitution, but I mean, you run a venue with inadequate lighting, lots of dark corners, kids are going to have sex and then the rumors flow. Okay. So at the time there was, um, a young person who lived on the East side who got drunk and went home and, uh, this child, young person's parents complained to then city council member, Norm Rice. Mm. Hey, my kid just came home drunk do something about this. Norm Rice drafts the teen dance ordinance as a revision of a very old Seattle law about teen dances written in the 19, in the teens. 
that was written to protect young women from men getting off of boats in the city of Seattle and literally attending teen dances and, and cavorting with these young women. Right. So Rice rewrites this law as the teen dance ordinance and it passes and the law does what you said. You're, you're on point. You know, the ages, I can't remember specifically what age is above and below. Well, I remember the, the real trick was that if you were 18, 19 or 20, there was technically no legal way for you to go see live music. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I'd have to see a copy of it in front of me. It's been a while. But, but what ended up happening was no one saw, no one could find the teen dance ordinance. Because you're absolutely right. Shows would be shut down. They would cite something about the dance ordinance. They would never pre present the teen dance ordinance. And we just knew. And there was no ticket. No, there's nothing. No, there's nothing right. in writing. No ever. charge. Nothing in writing, no charges. We just knew that there was a thing called the Teen Dance Ordinance. And when I moved here, I'd been going to the Anthrax. There was shows five times a week at the Anthrax. There was shows at CBGB's in New York. There was shows all over the place. And these venues weren't, like, sanctioned by the city, you know. I mean, these these were just, like, crazy, you know, hardcore kids at times running venues. Maybe not in the case of CBGB's, which was a legitimate business. But, you know, the Anthrax, I mean... How could it be that there could be an anthrax, which I assume there was one in every city, yet in Seattle there was no all-ages venues? So you start hearing about the teen dance ordinance. In Seattle, the birthplace of grunge. No, I mean, <laughs> like, we're joking, but think about that. Yeah. Summer of 91, I moved here three weeks after the Nirvana album dropped, and it was like... We were known for young music. 100%. And young people couldn't legally go see music in Seattle. Correct. The whole world was coming here to find that music, and those bands had already moved away. Or if yeah. they hadn't, they were on their way to, you couldn't play here. So so we kept hearing about this teen dance ordinance. And finally, you know, I, I just I was just like, what is happening? And you're right that there was this upswell of people talking about it, including Lori LeFevre, including Meg from the Velvet Elvis mm -hmm. and other people. And I shouldn't say way before getting involved with Lori, because the, I think the first step, one of the first steps, Laura, I don't know if you remember Laura Porto. Yes. Laura and I went down to the, the Seattle Public Library and we said we'd like a copy of the Teen Dance Ordinance. And they said, we don't know, we don't know what that is. And we wouldn't know where to find it. And we said, okay, well, where's all the laws of the city of Seattle? And they gave us these books that were printed out with like dot matrix printers. And we went through the books and we found the Teen Dance Ordinance and we made photocopies of it. Yep. And then we, uh, we had a meeting, we had a public meeting and we brought this to Was everybody. Was this at? The Velvet Elvis? I think the first meeting was at the old firehouse okay. because we formed what we called at the time the um, the All Ages Music Organization, which in hindsight, naming your... Ammo. Yeah, probably a bad choice. No, it was great. It was, I loved it. <laughs> so, but um, we had a meeting and we, we you know, because everyone at the time was up in arms about stage diving. There was this yeah. whole thing about stage diving at the old firehouse. And, 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 and kickboxing. And stage diving and kickboxing, um, you know, which was, which was a, a thing. I always remember Ryan Murphy uh, coming back from the Undertow Tour. Yes. All excited about kickboxing. Because Clevo... Brian, yeah. uh, we, we were staying at his house yep. and he was playing Earth Crisis for us and teaching us kickboxing moves in his backyard. It's once again, something out of a damn movie. Everyone, we were, and as we went that summer, as we went like, like state to state, this was picking up more and more okay. happening. I and can, it was fantastic. I remember the first time and I horrible. saw it. The first time I saw it, I was at the, I was at the Anthrax. There was um, an Amnesty International benefit, which I'm pretty sure had Sick of It All, Burn, and some <laughs> other bands. And I remember it was just a typical night at the Anthrax, say three, 400 kids, everyone packed in going nuts. And I will never, in my, I can see it as literally as plain as I see you now in my mind. There was a guy, shirtless, camo, long camo pants, okay, and high tops. 
And all of a sudden, in the midst of whatever song, he just does this spin kick and throws an arm like kickbox style. Oh, yeah. The entire pit, which seconds before had been filled with kids who thought they were the baddest, all of a sudden the entire pit off to every side. Whoosh, and this kid is standing by himself in the middle of the dance floor. And everyone literally was like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> and all of a sudden... The entire scene changed forever. It was in that instant. I remember watching it happen, at least at the Anthrax. I'd never seen anything like it before. It was totally nuts. Okay, so everyone <laughs> But wants... you were so right to say Ryan Murphy coming back Murph... from the 94 tour because it totally came that back it. with that. He brought, he brought it back like like the Black Death across the ocean. <laughs> so he, um, he was excited. I remember how happy he was. But everyone wanted to talk about kickboxing and stage diving, and they were really mm -hmm. disillusioned about it. The, the dancing was getting violent. The dancing like, was getting more violent. violent. Sure. Okay. I don't think violenters. And that's fine. And also not as interesting to me as music is illegal and access to art is restricted by Absolutely. the police. Absolutely. So we formed a uh, this alliance and the idea was that we were going to talk about kickboxing, talk about stage diving. Um, and then we were going to talk about the law, about the teen dance ordinance. And I remember distributing copies of the teen dance ordinance. And as we read it, to your point, there was age restrictions. There was also insurance restrictions. And there was security restrictions. So you had to have special insurance to run an all-ages venue, which is problematic, not just because it's expensive and a pain in the ass, but because that's already covered in business licensing law. Yeah. So why would there be two laws that apply to the same promoters using insurance as the basis of the law? It's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's a, um, uh, it's, well, it's a duplicate law, essentially. And then security was a problem, too. Why are you requiring Seattle police officers to be on site at, at, these shows, how much are you paying them? Are they getting overtime from the city while they're at? The, it was, there's a lot of really. Weird it was questions. just written to stop 100%. business, not to to allow for business. Correct. Totally ambiguous. Yeah. So, so we formed the All Ages Music Organization and started to meet. And to make a very long story very very short, we decided that we were going to overthrow the Teen Dance Ordinance. And did you? We did. And and if I'm not mistaken, Kate Becker was involved in making a film about this. Now you're getting way ahead. So let's just take one step, okay. back, one step back. We decided that we were going to overthrow the teen dance ordinance. And a group of us, and it was a loosely affiliated, but a core group of people with loose affiliations and support from dozens and dozens of people. You know, Matisse was involved and Kate Becker and Lori Lefevre and Meg and me and Laura and uh, a bunch of people yeah. started meeting and thinking, okay, how can we fight this thing? And at first we thought on the grounds you're talking about, this is unenforceable because our position was it was unconstitutional. So we got a lawyer involved. Now we're at the meeting you thought about at the, at the Velvet Elvis. Yeah. We got a well, lawyer. Like I said, I'm old. I, stop, I knew this stop stuff was it. going on. Stop but... it. It's awesome. It's great. <laughs> Young till you die. So, um, and I want to massage you. So, um, so uh, we got this lawyer to come speak to us at the old firehouse or at the uh, Velvet Elvis to talk about the supposed constitutionality or lack thereof of the law. And from there, started to realize that the way to go about this was to get votes, you know, because Norm Rice became mayor. The guy who wrote the law as a as a city council member became mayor. So of course he did. Right. So there's no way you're going to you're going to overthrow this law while he's mayor because his friends are going to say, what are you talking about? Right. So we um, we 
we had to wait until there was a new mayor and a new city council. And then we started going to the city council members directly, trying to get their votes. And there was years and years of this where we'd get meetings, we wouldn't get meetings. The police didn't want to talk to us. The city council didn't want to talk to us. People weren't acknowledging the law existed because realistically, someone somewhere knew yeah. that it was it was a questionable law and they didn't no one wanted to put their name on it. Essentially. So real quick, though, for a while, wasn't the goal to get ticketed? Oh, we would have loved that. Because would that have would have caused it. the case that would have Absolutely. Yeah, challenged we, we, it. Please. I remember being at the uh, Sailors Union of the Pacific Hall that Lori was booking, and there was a show, multiple shows shut down because of the teen dance ordinance. But <clears throat> by now, the police are wise to the game, and they're not saying teen dance ordinance, but they're coming in saying, you know, that outlet right there doesn't match electrical code, so we got to shut this show down. Or, you know, that, that water fountain is too many inches away from that. we got to check the plumbing. The venue law. you're talking about is now an El Gaucho steakhouse. <laughs> and I'm wondering if the police are still worried about the outlet. They, they they might. They might not be because I'm sure that Lori, in trying to, you know, be up to code, changed it, you know, because she was jumping through hoops. She was jumping through hoops trying to, you know, trying to... It was like chasing smoke. She was trying to satisfy the electrical outlet. And once that was settled, then the next week they would show up and say, where are the off-duty police officers? Or where is your insurance? Or where is your this? What is the that? So she was getting shut down constantly. So we realized that we had to do something more. And we started going directly to city council members and, and you know, trying to, you know, persuade votes. Eventually, the city formed a... Uh, and actually, there was a teen dance ordinance resistance before that became that became ammo. I'm pretty sure I'm just remembering that now. TDOR was uh, the original group oh, that became God. ammo. Yeah, teen dance ordinance resistance is that's what we started when we were distributing the copies, and that later became ammo. Point is, we started going after city council members. They eventually listened and arranged to have a monthly meeting of representatives from the music community, promoters a representative of the Seattle legal department, uh, fire department, police department, city council members, mayor's office, all sitting around a table talking about all ages music. And there was a year of that, of these meetings. And it was problematic because we were trying to say, listen, we just want to have punk rock shows. Yeah. To which the reply is, that's dangerous. Kids are going to be using drugs. No, they're not. Totally. The, you the, know? the same old tired argument. Absolutely. So let's, let's jump out of this for one second. And let me propose this to you. I think the effort to get it repealed and everything that was done was awesome. And it was a fight that needed to be – it was a war that needed to be waged, and it was. Um, but imagine a Seattle in the time period that we're talking about without it. Without the, the teen dance ordinance? Yeah. If you don't have hurdles, you don't jump as high. I'm, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. And I thought al along the way that I wish there was a way – to get people to just do shows, do shows anyway, get arrested. Like that's why we were telling and people. And there was some of that. Absolutely. But we were telling people, get cited for the teen dance ordinance. Do a show without insurance. Do a show without security. Do a show where all ages are invited and promote it as an all ages dance show. Because even the law itself didn't specify what a dance and what a concert was. We spent months in those meetings defining a dance. What right. is music? What is a show? What is a concert? And if if people had just gotten cited, it would have been a fun, b exciting, <laughs> but it would have really been it would have really been um, a, a challenge to authority for sure. I'll close that story by saying, over the course of that year, 
sitting across from the police department who basically smugly just sat there and just, you know, waited for us to give up information about our strategy and tactics and across from the legal department who were like, yeah, whatever, we're the legal department, you know, do whatever you will. And then, you know, the pleading promoters and then the electronic music community was like, what about raves? And it's like, please kill yourself. So, I mean, come on, like, you're not even in this reality, you know? So what eventually happened is Dave Whitson, Dave Whitson was working out at UW Bothell at the time in the library and he had a late shift midnight right. to 6 a.m. And he had something that no one else had, high-speed internet. Okay. So he calls me and he's like, dude, you Wait, got- what year is this? What, what, uh, late 90s-ish. Okay. You know, it's just, we all still had dial-up. You know, oh, yeah. We, I was we, still hearing okay. the tone getting online on AOL. Dave calls me. He's like, dude, you got to check this out. You got to come out here and we got to play some online backgammon because, like, it's nuts. So I go out to <laughs> UW Bothell and we're sitting around. He was on the committee, too, or he was in the in the audience at every meeting. Um, was he on the committee? Regardless, we were, it's all blur that the, who was on it's cause it made, it was just a wash that committee thing. It was just so dumb. It was like, yeah. it was the city saying, look at what we're doing. Yeah. You know? So Dave and I go out to the UW Bothell, we're playing backgammon. And one night I can't remember who said it first. One of us was like, I wonder if there's other cities with teen dance ordinances. And we start looking up and we start finding them. And because it's high speed internet, we're doing fast research. And it's like, wait a minute, Los Angeles has one. And it reads just like ours does in a way. And wait a minute, this other city has one. And what we were realizing was that Seattle had exported this teen dance ordinance to other cities. So what we did, we decided that let's throw a um, kind of an end run, a curveball around this whole process with the city. And we decided to write our own law. And what we did is we went around the country to all the teen dance ordinances and variants, variants of them. And we just literally cut and pasted the parts we liked out of each of those laws and put them in a document. And then we added some pictures that we took of ourselves playing musical instruments and all this ridiculousness. And the next meeting, we brought this to this council. And we, as everyone started arguing, how do you define yeah. a dance? What's a concert? <clears throat> we said, here's the solution. And this law is called the All Ages Dance Ordinance. And we propose that it, it replaces the Teen Dance Ordinance. And by some stroke of non-existent gods, the city legal department said, we'll take a look at this. And the next month they came back to us and they said, we've made some adjustments and some revisions, but they basically put it before a council vote. And I, I can't remember what the order of events was. There was a no vote and a yes vote and blah, blah, blah. But we pushed, you know, Kate and all yeah. pushed for this thing to go through and through her efforts and everybody who was working with her. Eventually the, um, the, the council voted it and the mayor voted it. And now on the books in the city of Seattle is no longer the teen dance ordinance, but the all ages dance ordinance. Now, just since we've talked about this subject, that was the subject of her film. What is her movie called? Um, Kate's movie. Is it called let them dance? There was is that her movie. I, I didn't know that that ever got finished. Did it ever get finished? Well, I think so. I'm not sure. There was, um, there was a, she wanted to do a project called, um, gosh, with the dancing. I can't remember the name of it. it was well, I'm going to try real yeah. hard to get her on this podcast do eventually. Although Absolutely. She's, yeah. she's a little high up the ladder at this point. And, but here's the thing. She is high up, but you have to hear her side of the story. Because remember, for every Dave Whitson, every moment that Dave Whitson and I were sitting around cutting and pasting like a bunch of idiots out at the UW Bothell and playing online backgammon and stuff, Kate was killing it. 
she was arranging the meetings. Yeah. Kate was making, you know, you know, taking the right person out to lunch at the right time and strategizing. That was the key. It's like Lori LeFevre was angry and just trying to run her business and do shows and having good shows happen. Dave and I were just trying to, you know, laugh and have fun and, and, and write laws when we had no legal training <laughs> to do so. Kate, Kate was thinking, okay, we've got this many council votes. We need to get this council vote and that council vote. That means we have to sweet talk this person. Let's form a, you know, uh, uh, let's get into a meeting with that person. Honestly, I, you know, I could sit here all day long and tell you stories about how funny it was that the punk rockers wrote a law, but without Kate Becker, <laughs> yeah, uh, we're nowhere. Well, this there's no way to to overstate Kate's uh, yeah. Kate's influence around here. It's on. It's insane. With the it's music scene, it's been fantastic. It's, it's all about Kate. We are going to run out of time pretty soon. I know you've got some place to be, but we've got to get to to current modern day greg bennick at some point sure um because really i've wanted to hear old stories and and figure out some of the nuts and bolts of what you are and why and i like this because this this refreshes my memory about a lot of the history that happened here and hopefully you know the collection of the ron and the kate and the lori and the whoever else you might have on 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 this and and our you know our collective selective memory will create a pretty accurate picture more or less of what the history was over the last 20 years here so yeah, it's gonna be it. it's not all gonna be correct there's a haze of course no well the thing is memory works like that right if i you know when i say to you we were sitting in a car summer in 94 i didn't say that to you summer in 94 i just remember we were sitting in, in a uh in a uh in a, in a cadillac i yeah. didn't even remember that the cop the top was cut off until you said it do you, right. But now that I've said the top was cut off, you remember the duct tape, don't yeah, you? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. The second you said it. But I'm saying that I just remember <laughs> you and I, at one point in that conversation, we did the the Larson um, high five hand grab, which is kind of like this, like, you know, it's kind of like this grab with a snap of your fingers. It's a handshake it's, that then goes into the more bro handshake. Let's do it right now. Okay. So it's, it's a, a handshake. regular handshake. And then you twist on the thumb. Right. So, so the, you get so that, you get that over the top Stallone kind of vibe. As if we're arm wrestling. As if we're arm wrestling. And then you snap your finger off the other person's thumb, basically. Right. And people are always like, I can't do it. You can do it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and I've, I, I didn't even know I was doing it that far back, but I guess I've been doing it pretty much forever. And you know what? Memory selective. You might not have done it. I just remember that you and I agreed to something awesome. We had a moment. We had a moment that there was, was a big handshake. Deal. And it was a big deal about the summer. It was yeah. we're going to take over the world, whatever man. it was. You know, whatever you it was. had just gotten done with Cornish, and you were like, "I am free. I can do what I want now." Because there was one day I was sitting in in and one of my final, final, final. Um, uh, reviews at Cornish. And I remember my teacher was Hal Ryder and Hal had this amazing vocal inflection. He was my Shakespeare teacher and he would, he would talk, he would talk like this. And I remember sitting across from him and he was, you know, asking me questions about Shakespeare and whatnot. And he stopped me at one point and he's like, Greg, there's, there's something, something bothering you, something, something missing. What, what is it? And I, and I said, what do you mean, Hal? He said, what, what is, what's missing from, from you? And there was a strange pause as I'm thinking, oh, I don't know what's missing for me. I'm, I'm this, and I'm a, you know, I know Shakespeare. Let me tell you more about Shakespeare. And he paused and was just staring at me. And I said, you know, well, how I, to be honest, what's missing? I was in this punk band called Process of Elimination in Connecticut. And, you know, I, I, I've come out here and I don't have punk rock as much because, you know, sure I get to go to shows, but realistically, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just, you know, just a part of this. I'm not contributing enough to the scene and I really miss it. You know, and he smiled the smile that I knew he was realizing that what I was talking about, I was more passionate about almost than the Shakespeare I was being tested on. And I knew in that moment that I needed to to do something, um, you know, to his credit. And one of the greatest lessons I got in college, I also 
oftentimes in life have chosen to ignore his other lesson that same day. He said to me, you know, and I knew in that moment I had to do more hardcore, right? I yeah. Had to do oh, more. Yeah. So that's what is getting to the point. But there was another lesson sidebar that day um, where Hal said to me, I think that you need to, to, to calm down, to relax. And I said, well, what do you mean, Hal? Like, I mean, I, I'm excited. I'm excited about the work and art and theater. And, I, you know, I'm, you know, hardcore is, is, is amazing. And I know I haven't blah, blah, blah. And he said, I want you to try to say less words. And I said, oh, of course, I absolutely, I, I, I'd be happy. And he goes, start now. <laughs> so over the years, as I've done these spoken word tours and I make my living as a speaker and I'm like training people on how to be a speaker, I wrote to Hal, this is 20 years later, I wrote him last year and I reminded him of that, how funny it is that I ignored that that little piece of advice. But anyway, it's because of him that when we met in that, that Cadillac, we were so stoked or I was so stoked. Well, that is awesome. Now, as we're winding down here, I realized that we didn't touch on juggling. We didn't touch on metal detecting, conspiracy theories, Ayn Rand. Okay, now uh, the, the apartment you lived in on Capitol Hill in the basement, and the weird dude that hung out at the mailbox. Okay, these are all great things. We're gonna have to do another. You're coming back before too long. All right, because we're gonna have to touch on a bunch of stuff because we can't we can't touch what I just said, what I just listed off on no, my fingers. I, I won't even try. And just so in case anyone gets worried about the fact that I said Ayn Rand, you're just gonna have to deal with it. Yeah, you'll just have to deal. You have to deal with it. I was gonna say like that <laughs> list went from the uh, the sublime to the ridiculous absolutely very quickly. So. Like her writing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but uh, I don't know if people know that you're called the juggler. Uh-huh. I think people do. Definitely a lot of people that everyone we know does. Yeah. But do people in your modern, the modern presentation of Greg Bennick, are they aware of the juggling that is your, your core? Um, or the juggling that is in my history and is a part of what I do. Not as much as those from quote unquote back in the day when I was literally doing like juggling shows all the time. I mean, you made money juggling on the street. When I first met you, you were paying your rent that way. Yeah, I was, I was, in fact, I was juggling at, uh, University District Street Fair, Folk Life, Bumbershoot, Bite of Seattle, and then downtown in front of what was the Newmark building, which is now the Target downtown. Mm-hmm. And I was I was down there all the time. And that's how I was paying my rent was as a street performer. You told me you would go out and you would juggle just long enough to go get Thai food. That was it. At Thai Garden on Broadway. That's all I cared and about. And sometimes that was that was all you would do for that day. I've got enough for the Thai food. That's it. That's all I cared about was Thai food. Okay, so I, I've, I've been waiting this whole interview for the gotcha question. I've got the gotcha question. Are you ready? I'm ready to be had or to be got, <clears throat> as the case may be. Are you now or have you ever been a mime? Of course not. What kind of question is that? Why would I... Ha- Think about how what I said. Am I? Because I said, have you ever been... No, I was never a mime. I will tell you as as close as I came, just as Cornish. I said it was a gotcha question. No, it's not a gotcha because I was never a mime. You had a business card that said mime. I also had a business card that said juggler, idiot, hypocrite, ugly. Greg Benick, liar, hypocrite, fool, juggler, idiot, ugly with my phone number. That's... That's amazing, and I'm sure that came out of something serious. <laughs> yeah, but like deeply rooted self-esteem but issues, but said, other than that. This one said juggler, clown, mime. I don't even remember it. And it, I, it was in your apartment. It was one of your old cards. I think it was from Connecticut. I honestly, on my straight edge, swear I have no <laughs> recollection. You swear on your edge? 
I swear on my edge that I have no recollection of a business card ever seriously saying mime. However, I do remember a business card saying liar, hypocrite, fool. And at yeah. the time, it makes perfect sense to me that my business cards would have said, you know, like I said, hypocrite, ugly or whatever, mime. I, I like the way on. you're reacting to this, to the fact but that you have been a, 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 accused of possibly at some point 30 years ago. 20, but still. 25. Yeah. We're getting in closer to 30 because I don't know how far back we go with this mime thing of yours, but... But keep in mind, keep in mind. And do you feel once a mime, always a mime? I don't know any, I'm proud to say. But here's what I will say, is that um, is that at the time, or even a couple years before, I had a promotional piece of material that I made. Oh, I think I, this might even be the same you one you're talking You have mime about. paraphernalia no, no, in your home. No, listen to this. <laughs> the thing that I made had so many different things listed on it including babysitting and i wasn't a babysitter but there <laughs> was just all these things that you could get hired no for. there was all these jugglers in the city and i just found them all to be just 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 like cookie cutter just repetitions of each other so my promotional material said like greg bennick like juggler fire eater clown it might have said yeah. clown mind babysitting if you could ever find a copy oh, of this God, thing be incredible because i I, I said on the flyer that my company was called Otter Entertainment, O-T-T-E-R, Otter Entertainment, and that you could book a mime. You know what? This is what you're remembering, 100%. That you could book a mime, you could, because I was going to farm out work to anybody right. I could find and take a commission, right? But one of the things on there said you could book a mime, you could book a juggler, in which case they'd get me. You could book a clown, in which case they'd get the other guy, and then... All, okay. The listing of all the things. One of them was babysitting because I, so, I wanted to catch people's attention. Okay. Okay. So you're saying that there was a mime that you worked with, even if you never met this mime, somewhere within and, your organization was a mime. And I'm, as I'm remembering, yes, there was a performer, somebody, somebody who worked as a mime that I worked with at the time. So when I say I don't know any, it's like I'm not hanging out with mimes, but I do remember that I did work with a mime. Yeah. I think mimes are extinct. Hold on. Let me let me finish the story that the, okay. I said the closest I came to being a mime, just as I came to Cornish. And I didn't say this before, but I came to Cornish not to be an actor. Of course, uh, it's always in the back of my mind, like, that'd be fun. I came to Cornish to have acting and theatrical technique augment my speaking ability. So, you know, an analyzing text and speaking from the stage and all that. So, too, did I seek out a lot of different types of training, especially when I was a teenager, from established professionals in things like physical theater. I studied magic for a long time and could probably do, we could do a whole thing on magic, but, you know, I can't give away these secrets. But I do remember there was a guy in New Haven, Connecticut, um, right down on the Yale campus, who worked as a, a physical theater performer. And I, I'd never seen him perform as a mime, but he had been trained by one, I think by a guy named Tony Montanaro, who's a famous mime. But I took physical theater lessons from him in terms of like stance and posture and whatnot. So you, you had secret mime training? I was trained by somebody who had been trained by a mime. Okay. So I'm not saying that I have no connection to miming, but what I'm saying is that- At some point- it's going to come around to the point where it's as cool as po you can possibly be that you were a mime. You know what I mean? That I can't imagine. It, that ironically, that would ever mime. Ironically, mime. <laughs> I can't imagine that would ever happen. <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine that would ever happen. But you know, maybe you see how some of these kids dress with the mustaches and the fucking hair. 
some of these kids. I this is like this is like the yeah, moment when some I some of these thirty year old kids. Okay. Yes. Now here's what I'm saying. If you went to Capitol Hill, you went like on Pike between tenth and twelfth, uh-huh. right, right in there. Yeah. At the at the when when the most shit was going on, would you honestly be surprised if a some if a thirty year old dude wearing all black with a painted white face came walking down the the sidewalk on his uh, on his invisible bike now yeah are you uh, you're asking me if i would, if you be, would be surprised, surprised to see a mime yeah of on broadway yeah of course off broadway but yeah off broadway <laughs> of course I, I would be shocked why would there be a mime uh, an ironic mime why would there be an ironic or literal mime anywhere in the city i mean i know the city's turning to complete overinflated overpriced garbage but like why would they introduce mimes that'd be the, the final death blow because there's not much left so you're saying introduce and bring in the mimes maybe well i'm just saying that it's some with someone with a mime background and i meaning you or me oh you please you were that's trained by someone who was trained by a mime that's like trained by you can't you know that would that would be like if I found out one of your associates at at Kinko's had once gone to see a circus and I called what you I'm a lion tamer. What I'm saying is, mime is like Jedi. Okay, don't turn this around so that I, then I get excited about mime and then you gotcha. Right, and that's the gotcha mimes moment. Mimes left, right? They've been wiped out. I have no idea. There are no mimes. I didn't know. Why are you being <laughs> mimist? I had no idea. That mimes are such an issue for you. I hadn't thought about mimes in 20 years before I came in. I've, I've, well, no, sometime in the last 20 years, I've given you a hard time about the fact that I, you had a card that said mime on it. Cause this isn't the first time I've called you on this. I don't remember. I don't remember a card. The flyer for Ottawa. Oh, it could have been a flyer. It yeah. was, it was where I saw this was in that weird basement apartment that you had. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Cause yeah. I mean, and it had a lot of your old stuff. Now keep in mind, there was a method to the madness. My method was that I, I committed very early on in life, like in my teens, that I would never, ever, ever have a day job. So when I was at Cornish, I was like, I'm going to make this work any means necessary. I refuse to ever have a day job. And if it means that I have to make a flyer that says mime and babysitting <laughs> on it, I'm doing it. If I have to catch people's attention with a business card that says, okay, idiot, so, ugly. The, so, so what you're saying is your business card was saying, I will even stoop as low as mime and babysitting I am not working your hourly wage. I wasn't willing to do the mime or the babysitting. What I was willing to do is take a commission from those willing to stoop so low. Got it. Okay, that's pretty good. Let's, I think we got to basically sum it up, but let's get to present day Greg Bennick. What have you got going on right now? Um, I'm going to let you explain it so I don't get any of the details wrong or flub the name, but I know you're working on some very important things. um, And I want to give you an opportunity since you've spent all this time going over hashing through the past with me, which I really, really enjoy and appreciate. Uh, what what does Greg Bennick have going on now? Here's a handful of things, really brief, like bullet pointed. Uh, 100 for Haiti is a development organization that does work in post-earthquake Haiti, 100forhaiti.org. So I'm the executive director of 100 for Haiti. And I do spoken word tours. And last year and the year before spoken I mean, two dozen countries or something like that, which is a dream come true. It's literally me challenging myself to not be terrified of of speaking. So I force myself to go out on the road because the idea of speaking each night is terrifying. And every time I don't die, I get excited and then I want to do it again. And then the next night I don't. And then I succeed and then I want to do it. It's just this really men- weird mental gymnastic thing. But wordsasweapons.com is where I post videos and things about spoken word and information about touring. And... 
while juggling is still part of what I do, I'm most definitely more of a speaker now for a living than a juggler. But the juggling is definitely metaphorical now, meaning I use it as visual imaging. And, you know, at gregbenick.com, that's, you know, the commercial site where that information is. But I'm working on a book on the Russian spoken word tour. And I'm doing a lot of research completely in a different realm about the work of a cultural anthropologist named Ernest Becker, who talked about death anxiety and a subconscious level in influencing our behaviors. So the movie Flight from Death that I made with a film partner in LA about 10 years ago has been a big influence and I've shown that all over the place. And I'm doing a lot of work and there's some projects in the works that I can't exactly confirm or deny today relating to Ernest Becker's life and work. Um, I'm working on a documentary about him becoming who he became as an academic and all the while being this kind of distracted, questioning himself, multidisciplinary thinker on his way to his Pulitzer Prize. I'm working on a documentary called We Are Creature uh, with a friend of mine in LA. And we're working on that right now, going through his old arch Becker's archives and papers. And then, um, you know, the occasional Rubik's Cube solving, metal detecting, you know, we'll get into it next time. <laughs> You know, non-miming life that I have as I hurtle towards a future in massage. That's basically my life, Dave. Fantastic. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming out and being here for my inaugural podcast. I don't know if I pronounced that word correctly. It, you did. And let me say this. Having done 40 it's, episodes it's now. inaugural, right? Having done 40 <laughs> episodes of my own podcast between Mirth and I, mm -hmm. I will say. That people can go find. People can. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud. <laughs> Having done that, you are off to an amazing start. Not because you had me, but because you've got the gear, you've got the sensibility, the awareness, you can keep a conversation flowing, and this is totally going to work. I think that I'm not going to be your last guest. I think you're going to have many, many guests and you're going to do really well. Well, thanks for saying that. I also like that I can just edit that right out of the end. Well, then I'll say it again. You're going to do really, really well. <laughs> Greg, thanks. I really appreciate it, brother. I Thank love you, man. Thanks, buddy. I love you, too. Well, there it is, the first episode of I've Known You Too Long, and the very first episode recorded for the Nobody's Knows Podcast Network. I'm going to be doing a lot more like this, and uh, I think I'll also be trying to correct the record as we go um, on mistakes that I make in the podcast. Uh, I do not think that the Teen Dance Ordinance film that I referenced uh, in retrospect actually got made. I tried to look up some information on it, and I, I have not been able to find any. So um, there's going to be more like this. When we go through this amount of time, hashing out all these things we remember, something is going to be wrong. Names, dates, specific situations. You know, the story doesn't necessarily have to be true to be good, but we'd also like it to be true. So from time to time, I might pop in here and correct the record. But uh, the next scheduled interview that I have is with Rocky Votolato. So probably shortly after this gets posted, you'll be seeing another one from him. And then I've got a, uh, a list of, you know... Somewhere between 60 and 100 people are going to be hearing from me. See if maybe they'd like to sit down across from me and hash it out. How do we know each other? Why do we know each other? What's that got to do with anything? I think the answer to that last one is nothing. And everything. Whatever. This podcast is a product of the Nobody's Knows Podcast Network. Executive Producers, David R. Larson and K. Drake Streetman. Music for this episode provided by Polymorph from the record Artifacts, Demos, and Debris.